0: Hello, and welcome to the Science and the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I am Nadia Popovich. Not so long ago, the promise of modernism was a more efficient life. Thanks to new technologies, the future was going to be all about jetpacks, robot housemaids, and plenty of leisure time for the rest of us. At least, if the Jetsons were any indication.
1: Oh, no, what would you like for breakfast? The usual, the usual coming up. Milk, cereal.
0: Machines would do all of our dirty work, even cooking.
2: And some bacon, bacon. And one soft boiled egg, and one soft boiled egg.
0: At the press of a button, ta da, out it pops. Thank
2: goodness that's over with.
0: Though it's not 2062 yet, things have gone a little differently in the 2000s than the 1960s vision of the future would have had you believe. There are no flying cars or robotic maids, at least not for most of us. And cooking has actually slowed down, if anything. In fact, in the long-anticipated, critically acclaimed new cookbook, Modernist Cuisine, The Art and Science of Cooking, there's a recipe for a burger that takes 30 hours to complete. But the taste of that 30-hour burger is worth the work, according to lead author Nathan Myhrvold. At a whopping 40 pounds and 2,400 pages, This behemoth of a cookbook, co-authored by Mirvold and chefs Maxime Billet and Chris Young, has been called the most astonishing cookbook of our time. It sits at the apex of culinary science today.
2: Um, If you put all of the text in one line, it would be seven and a
0: half miles long. And that's Mirvold, the man behind the cookbook to end all cookbooks, as chef David Chang has called it. In brief, he formerly served as Microsoft's chief technology officer before becoming an award-winning French chef. He's also a A grade-A T-Rex hunter, having found 13 skeletons to date, an award-winning nature photographer, and a bona fide barbecue master. So it's no wonder that his so-called cookbook goes far beyond recipes. Over its six volumes, modernist cuisine covers everything from microbiology and the physics of heat and water, to nutrition, to the techniques used to make traditional foods, and of course, modern ones. And oh yeah, there are recipes too. Mirvold came to the academy this March for a casual talk with Top Chef's Padma Lakshmi, while co-author Maxime B. A. dished out some tasty modernist treats. We've got it all in this edition of our monthly podcast.
2: The project I wanted to do was to have this comprehensive view of cooking, and science and technique. It was this and history, uh, all that stuff, and I felt it all had to be put out together and intimately woven into one work. Well, I couldn't do that in 100 years alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was something we'd have to approach as a team. So we uh, hired a team of folks. Uh, yeah,
1: how many people did it take, and, and so who for, are they? For three years, we had uh, 15
2: to 18 people working solid for three years. We also then would add freelance people. Um, the high-water mark where we had the most people working on the book, there's about 36 okay. uh, full-time equivalents. Yeah.
1: And, you know, you said you, you envisioned... 600 pages and of course it's four times that and you know it is very comprehensive i mean it almost it's like an encyclopedia you know it's so comprehensive it just feels like this magnum opus thing that's like this reference book did you did you start out wanting to write that big a book or did you say i'm just going to write the book that i want to read because that's what I both, kind of start. Both.
2: But I, I made this original outline. And I thought there was a bunch of things that really ought to be explained together. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a little bit like pulling it, uh, at, a, at a thread on your sweater, and then you discover you unravel the whole damn thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought this set of topics really made a cohesive whole. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was the book I wanted to read. Look, like, If I could have bought the book, That was a lot simpler. It didn't exist. (laughs) But it didn't exist, and I didn't think it was going to exist for many years Mm -hmm. anyway because it was a project so unlike the way people normally make books, particularly cookbooks, that it would take a very long time before people did it. You can find big comprehensive books like this about traditional cuisine. Yes. Culinary Institute of America has a big one. Mm -hmm. But there's, although it's a great book, I don't, I'm not, you know, dissing it, but there's nothing in that book younger than 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's sort of the newest techniques that are in there. So there's a couple of different threads that all get woven together to make what we call modernist cuisine mm-hmm. in this, this new movement. Uh, in 1984, Harold McGee wrote a book called On Food and Cooking. Mm-hmm. It was the first book that took a popular view of science in applying to the kitchen. Uh, food scientists had worked for a long time, but they had worked in universities or they'd worked in big industrial food labs for Kraft or Nestle or someone like that. Uh, the idea that science was relevant to Cook's was really unknown. So mm-hmm. he picked up on that. Hervé also did mm-hmm. different She's ways. Like Hervé and and uh, Harold both wind up I- influencing one of these uh, thrusts, which mm-hmm. is that science is really relevant. Yeah. Now, the very other different thrusts came in. So Ferran Adria. Mm-hmm. His was an aesthetic thing. He was not trying to use science. He was trying to cook in a different way than anyone had ever cooked. And then a third thing is people started using technology. So uh, people started using ideas from technology to cook. Mm -hmm. Sous vide was one of those, also early to mid-1980s.
0: In fact, modernist cuisine was born from the idea of making a cookbook all about the sous vide technique, which translates to under-pressure. But I'll let Mirvold explain it further. I
2: I think the best way to describe this is uh, that most cooking techniques are about cooking with very high heat. Mm -hmm. And you're cooking with something much hotter than you actually want your food to get. So if you're cooking a steak, if you want your steak medium rare, you want the interior of the steak to be about 130 degrees Fahrenheit. So you cook it on a grill, and the element in the grill is 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're cooking with something vastly hotter. If you're cooking it in a hot pan on the stove, it's probably a little cooler, but it's still probably 500 degrees Fahrenheit at least, five or Mm -hmm. 600. So what happens is you start, heat starts conducting in from the outsides of the food to the inside. And because the heat source is so much hotter than you want the food, timing is everything. And if it's too early, your food is raw, and if it's too late, it's not medium rare anymore, it's medium or well. So what sous vide is about, fundamentally at its core, it's about cooking at low temperature. to cook a steak sous vide, you would cook it at 131 Fahrenheit, 132. Only one or two degrees above the temperature you actually want it to be. Because when you cook it at that low temperature, it takes much longer. So a steak that you might grill for 10 minutes might take an hour to cook sous vide. So typically the way you cook it is, uh, although you don't have to, typically the way you do it is you seal it, vacuum seal it in a plastic bag and you put it into a uh, something called a laboratory water bath which uh, holds uh, water at a very precise temperature within less than a degree. So it's perfectly the right temperature. When you cook only one or two degrees above this, you can never overcook it.
1: You have incredible control, right? It comes yeah. out the same, perfect, all the time. The other thing is it's even. So when you, you, you cook
2: a steak in a hot pan or with a grill, uh, it's You know, charred on the outside, and then you've got a layer layer of gray, Mm -hmm. and it's only the middle is actually the temperature you want it. The rest is effectively, it's not waste, Mm -hmm. but it's overcooked. So with sous vide, it's perfectly even. Then if you want to sear the outside, you can sear it under high heat and just get a millimeter Mm -hmm. or half a millimeter seared on on the top and
0: bottom. But back to the book itself. As Miravald and Lakshmi explained to a packed auditorium, there's a lot going on beyond sous vide.
2: Uh, We have a big chapter about the history of cuisine. Um, I kind of got carried away, so we start with fire, and kind of (laughs) the history of cuisine going all the way up till now.
0: Then there's a chapter on techniques and equipment, and another on plants and animals. The final volume is a softbound collection of recipes. Of course, each of the volumes is brimming with some of the most amazing photos of food you've ever seen, including some interior shots taken right during the cooking process. But with a book this big and complex, there are bound to be some drawbacks. Like, can you actually make any of this stuff in there? I mean, I know I don't exactly have a centrifuge at home. Well,
2: we had a philosophy on the book about how any food can be elevated. Mm-hmm. That's why we worked on the hamburger or the french fries. Another philosophy is we didn't want to dumb the book down.
1: So you have not done that. No. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> and we figured, even dumb it down, either in when we explain science or technical things, we try to explain it the best we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, Or in the case of the the cooking stuff, if we would use a centrifuge or we'd use some other piece of equipment, we tell you that. Now we also suggest other ways you could do it, but we think people actually are curious. They would wanna know what the best chefs in the world, what is the ultimate way. About half of the recipes I think anybody can do at home. And hey, there's 1600s, I guess 800 of them. If you're willing to go and buy a few unusual ingredients or you're willing to buy a few pieces of unusual equipment, but all stuff you can buy at an ordinary kitchen store like Williams-Sonoma, that probably pushes you to about 80%. And that last 20%, good luck. <laughs> it's, that, that, that's quite exciting.
0: So, okay, you can do it, at least some of it. But what will it taste like? Well, that's where Maxime Billet comes in.
1: Hi, I'm, my name is Maxime Billet. I'm the, the head chef on the project and one of the co-authors.
0: He served the audience one of their signature recipes halfway through the talk, pistachio ice cream. Though, don't let that cream part fool you. The stuff had no dairy whatsoever. Instead, it was made completely from pistachio butter.
1: It's a, uh,
2: a dairy-free and egg-free gelato. Um, the pistachio cream itself is based on uh, one of the like, iconic recipes of the book, uh, our constructed creams, creams made from any other fat than dairy fats. The pistachio cream itself is made with pistachio butter, pistachio oil, water, sugar, and an emulsifier. And we use a rotor stator homogenizer to uh, stabilize that emulsion. And, uh, and yield this very unctuous, very potent uh, cream that we can turn into gelato or, or serve as a, as a custard.
0: Seeing how this creamless ice cream was so good, I just had to see what it was made of. So I flipped through the volume of recipes, but what in heaven's name was locust bean gum or polysorbate 80? Both ingredients in this pistachio ice cream. I thought back on that old rule that if you can't pronounce the ingredients, don't eat it. But boy, did Mirvold school me on that one.
2: Because there's a lot of people that think the word processed to them means bad. And if you're buying packaged food at the grocery store, I can understand that. But in fact, the technology can be used to make great food as well. Uh, my funniest example is I was talking to someone who said, well, isn't your stuff all highly processed? Why can't you have something simple and natural like a, a plate of pasta with uh, red wine, cheese, and bread? Now, to that person, I'd like hit them in the face because they thought processed meant bad. But believe me, bread looks nothing like grain. And it's a real, you have to mill it into flour, you have to have a microorganism you inoculate it with called yeast. There's this is whole process by which you make bread. Hey, wine and grape juice, again, not the same thing. A highly sophisticated technological process takes grape juice and turns it into wine. Um, now because those are familiar ones that have been around for a long time, this person was thinking of them as natural, because them natural meant good. Well, techniques for processing, ideas like controlling your temperature accurately, which people care about in a laboratory, people care about in maybe in an industrial setting, well there's no reason you shouldn't care about that at home. And I don't think there's anything that makes your food bad or evil or processed if you use a digital device to control the temperature accurately. Uh, Kiragenin is a gelling agent derived from seaweed. Why should you be prejudiced against boiled seaweed, but think that gelatin is okay? Gelatin is boiled pig hide. It's not obvious to me that one is morally superior (laughs) to the other, but because it's unfamiliar, and because our relationship with food is more profound than our relationship with most other uh, things in our life, it's such a profound relationship that when you suggest that you change things, even what I think are quite technical things, like changing the temperature you cook stuff at, it affects people in a very visceral way. And so I, I think that is a testimony to how profound a food's effect is. Uh, and I think over time, those people will lighten up a little bit, and they will realize that, in fact, there's some techniques here that make stuff that's delicious that they'll come to like.
0: So you learn something new every day. Processed ain't always bad. And Miravold should know... He's had bad. Uh, what's the strangest thing you've eaten, Nathan? Oh I bet
1: boy, <laughs> you've eaten a lot of strange stuff.
2: So the weirdest thing I've ever eaten mm-hmm. is a Sardinian specialty called maggot cheese. Mm-hmm. So you you make a, a sort of a ricotta, a little bit firmer than ricotta, then you let flies lay eggs on it and maggots grow, and then once it's kind of squirming with maggots, you scrape it up, mm-hmm. and you put it inside a sheep's stomach, and you let it sit for three months.
1: Funny, this wasn't in the talisman cookbook. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so then you cut it open and uh, uh, you're exhorted by your Sardinian friend
1: as to
2: kind of man up and go for it.
1: And how does that taste? Better than you'd think.
2: <laughs> Most of the maggot parts are all kind of distributed so that they're not quite like crawling in your mouth. Um, and it's, it's strong, it's like very, very strong cheese. It, it's, it is fairly salty, so it's like you took the strongest blue cheese you could possibly imagine and poured a lot of salt over it. In fact, there's enough salt in it that I remember when I first ate it, I thought, oh, thank God, no microorganism could survive this.
0: <laughs> well, there you have it, modernist and a little bit of not so modernist cuisine. If you'd like to check out some of the stunning photos that accompanied Miervold's talk, visit us online at www.scienceandthecity.org. Thanks to the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science for funding this podcast. Stay tuned in the weeks ahead for some special edition podcasts from Sackler and the New York Academy of Sciences. As always, we'd love your feedback. So please send emails to scienceandthecity@nyas.org. at nyas.org. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.